You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 371. This is Klaatu. In this episode, we're going to talk about LXC. Why? Because we're going through every single binary installed on the Slackware operating system uh, or distribution, as the case may be. If you're not running Slackware, that's fine. You can probably still get quite a lot out of this because these applications that I'm talking about are probably available on your distribution. Just use apt or DNF or whatever it is you're using to install software and you can follow along with most of this, if not all of it. Um, And hey, if you're not running Linux, then stick around anyway because you can learn stuff about Linux, some of the applications available for Linux, and quite frankly, they may be available on your uh, operating system through Homebrew for Mac or Chocolatey for Windows, so check those out. And I mean, hey, it's all open source anyway, so at the very least you could go get the source code and compile it yourself if you really, really wanted to. Well, LXC is a little bit more complex than that, but we'll get into that. We'll, 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 we'll talk about that, and, uh, and if you're not running it, that's fine. You'll still get a lot of valuable information about containers. And that's kind of a hot topic these days, it's, isn't it? So let's talk a little bit first about some listener feedback. Yes, uh, Bill, Bill, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to use the last name, so I'll just call him Bill. He emailed me weeks ago now and said, hey, I've got some episodes uh, from your show, from GNU World Order, that seem to be missing from your archives. Would you like a copy? And my first reaction, obviously, was what kind of scam is this? Uh, it turns out it was not a scam. I have downloaded the episodes that are missing. I haven't uploaded them yet. I have downloaded them. I have scanned them for any kind of insidious virus or or secret message, and I cannot find anything. So I think Bill is for real. I think he actually just happened to have some episodes that I were, was missing from my archive and decided to offer them up to me, and he sent them to me. And gosh, wasn't that nice. Uh, so I will be adding some shows to the archive that, that were missing, so if you're if you're doing the whole listening back through the archives and you've you've experienced some some shows that are, are not there or you you've you've found some shows that some shows aren't there uh, well they they will be restored shortly so thank you to Bill for that Bill also sent me a really cool email uh, afterwards after all of the the episodes had been sent and downloaded he sent me a cool email afterwards talking about his sort of history with Linux and it's quite a long email so I'm not going to read it all but there are I'm going to kind of I'm going to touch some some highlights here. So first of all, in 1990, this is Bill speaking, in 1990 I got to play with a Tandy business class computer that had Xenix, that's X-E-N-I-X OS on it, and with 8-inch hard drive and floppy drive. I was fascinated with creating multiple user accounts and with file permissions. Being able to create a user, a group, and world and set permission, oh, and world permissions on the directories and files. So that was the first thing that kind of caught my eye, because I'd heard of Xenix. This is Klaatu again, sorry. Um, I'd heard of Xenix, but I didn't know a whole lot about it, so I kind of quickly did some research on it. Didn't find all that much, but um, it's definitely an interesting one. It's from 1980, not open source, um, so it, it is a Unix, though, and it was developed by, believe it or not, Microsoft and SCO, that's S-C-O. So this was a, a Unix based, uh, licensed by Microsoft from AT&T, apparently, and um, acquired later on, I guess, by SCO. 
because Go got like all kinds of Unix intellectual properties, as we probably all know. And if you don't know, then uh, not that long ago, like within my Linux using experience, SCO, SCO, was suing everyone left and right, claiming that they were the only company or whatever uh, with rights to anything Unix-related, and they, they were quite uh, quite fierce about it. It was um, pretty disappointing. They were... Um, I mean, the, the, the common term for it is um, patent troll. So um, they they developed this Xenix thing, this this port of Unix for apparently like personal computers. Like it was um, it was available on the desktop, and it was it was Xenix. And apparently they said in 1981 that um, Microsoft. This is a quote: Microsoft hopes that Xenix will become the preferred choice for software production and exchange. And um, Microsoft referred to its own MS-DOS as its single-user, single-tasking operating system and advised customers uh, who wanted multi-user or multitasking support to buy Xenix, uh, essentially, instead. So really, really fascinating stuff, a history that I had no idea about. Some of you probably will have memory of this uh, from real-life experience, but I, I was not... This was this is news to me. I did, I did not know about this. So fascinating uh, history. Uh, if you're really interested in it, just uh, all I did was go to Wikipedia, but then they, they, of course, link to a bunch of places from Wikipedia, including Byte Magazine and um, various places. So if you want more information, just do yourself a favor, go read up about it on, on Wikipedia. I, I would go on and on and on, but frankly, that wouldn't do any good because I'd just be reading stuff from Wikipedia and, and passing on, you know, secondhand information. So it would be probably better that you just go read that yourself. Okay, so then in 1998, says Bill, this is Bill again, in 1998, or at least 1999, I bought Red Hat at a Circuit City store. If not then, if not Circuit City, then CompUSA. I was able to install it, but no drivers for my graphics card were available, uh, and I was so I found myself at the prompt with nothing to do. Uh, I played with it from time to time. Uh, so this is Clatu again. That that's a great great memory. Um, 98, 99, whatever. Y- yes, you could walk into a computer store. First of all, there were computer stores back then, or, or rather, there were dedicated computer stores that sold software on the shelf. They, it was like discs in a box, and then you would buy the box, and you would take uh, them home, and the disc would go into your computer, and that's how you got software back then. You didn't download it. You you purchased it. You purchased physical copies a different time then. This was ninety eight ninety nine. So he went into this store called Circuit City, which, uh, having grown up in America, I, I have definite memories of Circuit City. It was there. They were a sort of a big... Um, well, a big box store, I guess, is what you kind of more or less call it. But it was a it was a big store, and it did a lot of consumer electronics. But if you were in a town without anything better, they might be sort of your place to go for like computers and anything technical. It, frankly, it was like the worst place to go. It was kind of a, it was a step up from Radio Shack. Which again in America is kind of like almost the bottom of the barrel. Uh, Circuit City, or at least was when I was there. Um, Circuit City, step up from that. They were their um, big red building is what they were, or a big red storefront, if I recall correctly. And their commercials on TV always had the, this little animation of like a plug being plugged into the wall, but then the plug would become a Circuit City store. It was pretty fancy, but I mean, if you went there, inevitably you would find that the cables were 
five times as expensive as they should have been, and their computer selection was lacking, and their software was lacking. But anyway, back in 98, 99, maybe it was different, I don't know, but stores like this literally had, like, Red Hat Linux on their shelves, and I remember this personally as Clat 2. I remember this because um, I went into a computer store in New York at the time, uh, and I remember seeing on the shelves... Um, Red Hat Linux, Yellow Dog Linux, and OpenSUSE, or, or SUSE, I guess is what it would have been at the time. And I just, I didn't, I think I've told this story before, but yeah, I didn't know what they, what those were, but it, it seemed to me like it was all very colorful, right? Because it was Red Hat, Yellow Dog, and then SUSE, which was, if I recall correctly, in a green box. I could be making that up based on more recent memories, but it was, it, it felt strange to see them. I didn't understand what it was. I looked at the box, or, or someone explained to me that it was Linux, and it was a exciting new operating system. I didn't even know what an operating system was at the time. All I knew was that it was they, they were things, and this obviously is incorrect because Yellow Dog is the exception here, but as far as I knew, they were things that you ran on PCs. And PCs, to me at the time, meant not Apple. And I had been mostly brought up to think that Apple was the only correct way to do computing, and therefore anything not Apple was to be avoided. And so I avoided that at a, for a very long time, and, um, you know, got kind of annoyed at people who would try to tell me that it was worth looking at, because I thought, well, that's stupid. It's a PC, and I don't use PCs, so I have no interest in this uh, Linux thing whatsoever. So that was canonically... My first experience with Linux was as a stupid kid in a computer store uh, who thought that it was just some kind of weird, um, you know, um, office suite for uh, for PCs, boring stuff. So um, yeah, that was that was how I first encountered Linux. Sadly, uh, you know, and I often think, oh man, if I'd only known, if I'd only gotten started back then. How different would it have been? And you know, to be fair, I don't know how different it would have been, because at the time I was not interested in computing. I probably would have failed miserably, much like um, Bill here did. I mean, well, he didn't say, he doesn't say he failed miserably, but he does say that he, he ended up at a prompt with nothing to do, and I feel like that's probably what would happen to me. So, um, oh well. Uh, so he, he went through some other stuff. He tried various things. Uh, he ended up at some point on uh mandrake he he ended up on or he settled on mandrake loved it thought it was so easy to install it looked great loved kde 3.5 which i could customize uh to look just the way i wanted it and i've i've certainly said this on this show before and i'll probably say it again in the future mandrake for for people who don't remember or for people who weren't around at the time mandrake was a big freaking deal it was like the ubuntu of its time it was um it was the linux that people could purchase and use and actually get support for i mean the, it was a game changer mandrake was and i never used mandrake so i'm kind of going off of stories here but that's my impression is that it was a big game changer and when i first got into linux mandriva the mandrake and um i'm blanking on the name uh the, the, the two distributions kind of merged and became mandriva and they um they they, they created mandriva and Mandriva was really great. I mean, it was it was genuinely a very, very cool project. And Connectiva, that was the other distribution, Connectiva Linux. Um, and it, yeah, it became a really, really nice uh, 
Linux distribution with a, a, a very cool program where you could purchase uh, sort of like their um, their star their star program. I don't remember what it was, uh, and you would get these power packs full of more software than their free repositories uh, contained. And it was you know it was a business model. It was something that you could you could try and you could do and maybe get support for. Um, and I don't know, it, it felt like a very great idea, but I think what we've all learned since since the early 2000s is that just the, the, the model of computing has moved on from live support. And that's difficult for people to, to grasp even the concept of why would you expect live support for a computer product. But back a long time ago, and I'm, I'm watching the Netflix series High Score. If you're not watching that, you, you, you might be interested in it. It's about video games, and it's a pretty good, pretty neat series. It's talking about all, all the popular video games, and it kind of goes through the, 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 the very beginning of video games back in the, I guess, 80s, and then kind of through the slump that occurred, and then the, re- the, the revival of the video game market with Nintendo, and then the transition into Sega. Or, or the addition of Sega, and so on. But one thing that you get from that is that there used to be people that you could call on a phone for support for software. And you could do that for, for all kinds of things, whether it was your office suite or your video game, and you could you could call the software publishers, and you could talk to people. Sometimes you could talk to the developer. And that was a big deal. There wasn't a big deal, and now that would be a huge deal. Um, and for whatever reason, whether it's just because that model doesn't scale or or I don't know, but that's just not the model that we're, that I think that's fallen away. That's not something that we can sustain, apparently, because nobody does it anymore. So you can't really do that anymore. But I, I think that, that Mandriva certainly gave that, that sort of, that feeling, that, that, that model a try and, and sort of the, the inspiration from all that of just saying, okay, well, if you give us some money, we'll make sure that this repository here, which you'll have permission to access if you pay a subscription fee for, is updated with even more stuff or even later stuff. Um, and, you know, the, the anti-capitalist in me says, well, I don't really love that model, but the realist in me says, well, maybe that's not such a horrible idea. And certainly I've had subscriptions to, for instance, Red Hat before, and you can get a subscription to Red Hat, but they are obviously very, or not obviously, but they, they are, they tend to be very server focused. So even if you have a, a subscription, you're not going to, for instance, call them up and say, hey, I need, um, I need Kadian Live to be installed on Red Hat uh, in an easier way. I mean, for the record, that is actually pretty easy. You just install it by Flatpak. But, um, you know, some other thing that you need maybe, and that you're, you're not going to find someone there who, who knows how to do that probably. So, yeah, I just, un- unfortunately, um, the, the computer industry has, has kind of has, has developed in such a way that the idea of support just doesn't seem to be a realistic business model. And that's where we are today. Uh, and then Bill talks a little bit more about other things, and um, it, it's all very, very interesting. But um, it does go on for a bit, so I don't want to, I don't want to hold up too much. Um, the the final thing that he does mention that kind of made me um, kind of think uh, about was uh, that he loved playing with DSL, which was um, a very tiny Linux distribution. He he mentions Tiny Core specifically as well, um, and 
and that kind of made me think about how I don't really get to mess around with um, distribution, so portable distributions, so much anymore. I mean, I've I've def- definitely done that before, uh, and it was great. And I've done episodes both, I think, here on on my show and on Hacker Public Radio about it, and. It's it's so cool that these small portable Linux distributions exist, and I think it's more than cool. It's kind of really important. Um, but you know, as as someone who you know, when you start settling into a, a place and you're not moving around all that much, the portable Linux thing becomes less important, less significant because I really don't need it so much anymore. I mean, I still carry. Um, Oh, my keys aren't on me right now, actually. I still carry. I mean, the, see what I'm saying? Um, I still I still carry um, Porteous a Slackware-based small distro on my keychain. It's on a little metal thumb drive, um, and it's just great. But I just honestly, I don't use it much anymore because um, all my computers have an OS on them, and I'm perfectly happy just using the OS that's on them. And it's just kind of one of those things that does, it it starts to fall by the wayside because you just don't need it as much anymore because you're not moving around like you used to. Uh, And especially right now during, um, during pandemic times, you just really don't have a chance to go up to random computers and pop in a, a portable distro and reboot and use Linux on them. So, um, you know, maybe sometime in the future I'll be doing that again, but um, yes, I do kind of miss it, to be honest. I do miss that portable experience, but at the same time, it just doesn't make sense for me right now. Okay, so uh, let's talk about LXC. LXC stands for, um, I I actually don't know what it stands for, Linux Container Project is, is what it stands for. I don't know what the X part stands for. Maybe that's the the X at the end of Linux. But um, if you go to linuxcontainers.org, you find the um, LXC uh, project there. You'll also find the LXD and the LXCFS. But we're talking about LXC, which is the it's a set of tools, templates, libraries, and language bindings. Low-level, flexible, covers just about every container feature supported by the upstream kernel. LXC is production-ready. This is all from the LinuxContainers.org site. Production-ready with LTS releases, coming with five years of security and bug fix updates. That's LXC. LXD is um, something different. It is... Uh, it's quote-unquote, the new LXC experience. It offers a completely fresh and intuitive user experience with single command line tool to manage your containers. Containers can be managed over the network in a transparent way through REST API. It works with large-scale deployments by integrating with cloud platforms like Open Nebula and OpenStack. And finally, there is LXCFS, which is the user space that is Fuse, F-U-S-E, file system offering two things, um, well, probably more than that, but two two big ones are the overlay files for CPU info, MIM info, stat, and uptime, and then cgroup FS compatible tree allowing unprivileged writes, which uh, you kind of learn more about if you start using tools like Podman and things like that. So that's um, that's LX, LXC, LXC, uh, linuxandcontainers.org. And what all of this has to do with really anything is that containers are a really, really big deal. And, you know, people can say that and talk about it and go on and on about it all they want. If you're not using it, you, you don't quite understand what that means. So I'm going to kind of try to give you a perspective on it. It is a perspective. So Linux containers. Starting from sort of the very basics, we've talked about this a little bit before with namespaces, 
uh, specific and, and share unshare. Um, we we ns inter was a command that we talked about in a previous episode. So we've we've had some exposure to this on GNU World Order before. I don't believe I've gone over LXC during that time. If I have, hopefully this will be a slightly different spin on it. But for LXC, or, or rather for Linux containers, we should kind of walk it all the way back to virtualization, right? And there was big, big, big deal virtualization was uh, from about, I'm just going to use the dates of my awareness, which doesn't really cover it, but let's just say from like uh, 2003 or 2004 or so, all the way to like maybe, I don't know, four years ago or five years ago, uh, so 2014, so maybe a good 10 years, um, there was, uh, there became this, this well, I w let's put it this way, virtualization really came into its own. And that's an important way of saying it, I guess, because virtualization has kind of been around for a lot longer in one way or another. And I think if if we're broad enough, we could we could we could just look back as far as you know the mid '80s or so, or maybe longer. Who knows? Um, where you know there were emulators and things like that, and that's not virtualization. That's emulation. I'm, that's why I say if we're broad enough in the in in that concept. But eventually, like people, you know, the computer industry was kind of dancing around this, and you you you'd see it all over the place. You'd see it pop up here and there, such that my memories of it was if you absolutely need to run some PC application on Mac, here is a software that will make that happen for you. And lots of different companies flirted in that space with varying degrees of success. And then finally, 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 someone came out with a virtualization thing where the, the big deal was, hey, look, stop messing around with compatibility layers and emulators and things like that. Just install the operating system you need. It will pop up in a window on your operating system, on your current operating system, and you'll have a window into a different operating system, and then you can run whatever you need to in that window. And that's what we'll do. That's That'll be the thing that we do. It's a virtual machine. It's a virtual machine. And that that was okay with everyone. I personally was excited about the technology, um, but a little bit disappointed by sort of a lot of aspects of it, right? It just doesn't really feel like that's the most graceful way to accomplish this this goal of, of making things cross-platform. So to me, I, I didn't love virtualization, didn't hate it, didn't love it. But once I found out about, about Linux, then it became a lot more appealing to me because now I felt, well, now I can actually, I can try Linux without having to install it first. Or once I was, have, had switched over to Linux, I can, I can run other distributions of Linux without, without having to install them and so on. So it was, it was a useful tool. But again, I don't know that it was ever anything that was, um, terribly, terribly sort of realistic as a solution for anything. Although that said, I mean, at one particular job long ago, my my avenue to running Linux at that job was to run it in a virtual machine. So, and I would actually use Linux on that virtual machine. Like that is actually what I would use, which which was cool. You know, that was useful. So it's a useful thing, and and it became so useful that systems administrators w started using it in earnest um, to the point that they would buy, let's say, four hardware servers, like four actual physical servers, bare metal servers. They were actual 
things and they would put them in a rack and they would put them in a room that was air conditioned and power controlled and everything that's what they would have right but on those four boxes they would be running uh four virtual machines on each box and one virtual machine would manage all of their email uh their email uh traffic and another virtual machine would handle all of the um the the web server stuff that they would need for the intranet and then another virtual machine would handle all the web traffic for the internet and so on right so you'd have like these virtual machines with rather dedicated tasks or some subset of tasks and you would have failovers and all sorts of things and it was quite powerful because maybe before you would have had to buy 16 servers but now you only had to buy four and they were powerful enough to run four virtual servers on the inside of them um for you know within virtual machines and it was a big deal and I mean, it was such a big deal that companies built an entire business model around that. I mean, it was it was legitimately. I mean, it was a it was it 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 was the the service that some companies provided, and and that lasted for about ten years. And luckily, I kind of dodged that bullet altogether. Like, I didn't really ever have to go down the virtualization path all that seriously. I. I I did use a couple of virtual machines here and there, but I never really had to invest too much time or energy into it, which looking back, I think I'm happy about. I did, I kept meaning to get more into it at the time. I never did, and looking back, I'm kind of happy because it's kind of like nobody does virtualization anymore. I mean, you do on your desktop for fun, but not not in the professional sort of the the actual, you know, sysadmin world. Um, I mean, I'm I'm making a huge generalization here, but but I think... I think everyone in the industry would agree that that is not the way things are moving now towards virtualization. And instead, things are going towards containers. And so the difference there is that when you create a virtual machine, you are creating a, let's call it a container. You're making a box, right? And you're saying, okay, in this box, I have a motherboard, and I have a network card, and I have a CPU, and I have some memory, and... Uh, then I've got the OS on top of that, and then in the OS I have all the user stuff. And that's a virtual machine, because it starts with that, the, the basics, the, the motherboard inside of a pretend metal case. Well, when you build a container, you don't have to do all of that. You say, well, I don't need a metal case, because I've got a metal case right here on, on the computer. And then you say, well, I don't even need that motherboard, actually, because I've got a motherboard right right here on my computer. And I don't need the memory, and I don't need uh, the CPU, and I don't need any of these things, because I've got all of that stuff running. And in fact, I don't even need... Um, a driver for the graphics because uh, I've got that too. So you, there's all these parts that because you have it on your actual physical computer, you don't have to account for it in your definition of what your quote-unquote virtual machine or, or specifically your container. You don't have to account for that in the definition of that container. You can just say, eh, just pass through, pass through. Now the stuff that you want to be different within your container, that you do have to account for. You have to say, well, um, I, I need, you know, I, I need th this set of libraries because that it's my my pretend computer would need those libraries in order to run the, the software that I want to eventually run. And you might think, well, why wouldn't you just pass that through? Well, you you could do that, but then at that at, then there would be no container. You would just be running software on your uh, on your computer. So the the presumption is that you have some software that you want to run, but you want to run it in such a way that it is completely isolated from the rest of your box. So you give 
this container thing, just the parts that are different. It's kind of like a, the, the delta of your computer. And so it's an extremely, compare, especially compared to a virtual machine, it's quite a lightweight entity within your, compu within your physical box uh, that is running. Now, compared to, for instance, uh, just downloading some source code, compiling it, and running it, it's a lot more, it, it's, it's, considerably more more um more bloated right because it, it it's got the software but then it's got all those libraries that it needs it's got everything that when you type in ldd everything that it connects to that's what you have to put into your container and if this is sounding at all familiar to you you might be uh you might you you might think of things like app images or flat pack or even snap you could arguably say that they're related to containers to container technology the these this is all kind of in a related space and and it is definitely uh it, it's probably maybe not in the same family tree as virtual machines but i don't know arguably you could probably even say it was in the same in the fa same family tree because you know as virtual machines kind of as that technology developed we started seeing progressive ideas like hyper hi, hyper um i'm completely blanking on hypervisors i wanted to say hypervision hypervisor technology where you could tell your virtual machine hey you know what don't worry about the cpu or, or rather do worry about the cpu but then you trick it and you tell it that its cpu is you, you almost simlink your you, you simlink your your cpu to your virtual cpu it's maybe a good way to describe it and and that was a big deal because now you didn't have to have a CPU driving a fake CPU. You could just point the fake CPU to your actual CPU, and suddenly your virtual machine is is running off of the same you're running off of the same calculations directly. So it's all kind of related. This sort of um, semi-transparency technique from your, the the space that you are trying to create virtually and your actual physical computer host. But containers has managed to do that uh, with with just a, a whole different level of, of sophistication than virtual machines ever could. And part of this is because containers are Linux. There's a t-shirt with that phrase on it that um, I, I wear quite frequently. And people have asked me before, what does it mean containers are Linux? And it's... It, it is it is simply the a truism of containers that when we say containers when we're talking about containers in the sysadmin world that's linux a container that the, the container that you are creating is linux and that's kind of an important thing to remember or to to be aware of because if someone says well do you know containers then in one sense you dear listener whoever you are whatever your experience if you are running linux right now on your computer then then you have like a, a huge amount like some percentage of knowledge about containers that you don't even know you have because once you're you, you may not know how to spin up a container you may not know how to get into a container but once you figure that out you'll you you are exactly where you want to be with linux because that container is running linux so if you know how to run a computer with linux on it you know how to run as it were a container now there's a bunch of subtleties about containers that you may not be prepared for but the the container itself you will find very comforting you will be at home within that container there's no question about that because the container is linux and yes you can run 
containers on a Windows host, but like, like for instance, Docker, which I've done in a Hacker Public Radio episode on. You can go hunt that down if you want to. That was in the early days of Docker. Um, well, relatively early. Um, you can run it on Windows, but I mean, once you're doing that through this this abstraction layer that was Docker, that is Docker, I guess, you're, the, the container that you spawn is Linux. And so you've got all the information you need to deal with that container. And a lot of people, I don't think, quite realize that. Like, a lot of people don't understand how big of a deal that is for you to already know everything about the internals of that container because you already know Linux. That's a huge, huge advantage. And so if you are someone looking to maybe branch out into sysadmin stuff or you're looking to branch out into computer stuff, just understand that containers are Linux, and if you are a Linux user, you've got a whole set of experience that a lot of people dealing with containers, they don't have that because they're running it off of a Mac host or a Windows host, and they don't they don't know what to do once they're inside of that container or once they're talking to that container. Big deal, big deal, really. Don't don't under don't underestimate that. Don't undersell yourself on that point. Okay, so before we get into LXC usage, let's go take a coffee break. <laughs> coffee i hope i've been sipping on my coffee so i've actually already had it but i i waited patiently for you to get one you're welcome let's get started with on uh, on really using lxc there's not actually that much to say about it but uh, i think it, it it bears it's worth a quick tutorial i think so the first thing that you have to do is create a network bridge and you can think of a network bridge as for instance a y adapter when you're you know if you've got two people who want to listen to some audio on a computer you can plug in a physical uh, Y adapter, and it gives you two inputs instead of one. Or, uh, yeah, yeah, two two headphone jacks instead of one. Or even a power strip. If you've ever used a power strip out, out, out of your electrical socket, plug that in, now you've got more. Same kind of deal. Same signal, but it's getting routed a couple of different ways. Um, I guess you could think of it as that. I, I, there's probably a subtlety there that I'm that I'm skimming over that's not fair, but you get the idea, right? It's a bridge. It's, it's, it's going to bridge some signals. So the way that you do that is, uh, I guess, really a two-step process. You do, um, this is with the IP command, and you could do, um, in Slackware, either sudo, possibly, it kind of depends on how you have sudo set up, what the path is. So you might want to just do su and then put in your password as root. And then as a root user, IP space link space add. So you're adding a link, and we'll call this br0 this bridge zero, type bridge. BR zero is of course arbitrary, you could call it anything, you could call it bridge, you could call it penguin, it doesn't matter. BR zero is the more, that's the typical name for that you would probably want to use. That, that, that would be highly, highly expected by any other sysadmin, so that's probably what you would want to use. Once that uh, is, is created, by you, then you can do an IP uh, show, no, IP um, adder show, I guess, so ADDR show, and then BR0, and this is telling me that BR0 is, um, it, it exists, it has 
uh, a link and it's got some properties so it's it's a, it's a thing it it exists essentially and that's good so uh you could just do ip at her show and it'll show you all of your network interfaces your loopback your ethernet your wireless whatever but interestingly if you do for instance an if config then you'll notice that the only internet or the only uh interfaces you see network interfaces you see are eth in, in my case eth0 loopback and wlan no br0 well, that's weird okay so the the reason for that is because this is not this hasn't been brought up yet you can do that by doing an ip link set br0 up that brings this bridge up and and then if you do if config again then you see br0 ethernet loopback and wlan or or whatever your interfaces are but the point is that it'll actually be it's an active link now um, as opposed to just existing. I think that's more or less all you need for for this um, for for, for, for uh, as root. So and this understand that LXC is a low level proto or not protocol. Um, uh, it's a low level interface for containers. This is not how you would normally probably be creating a container. There are other ways to do this now, and more than likely you'll be doing containers on some kind of cloud on a cluster somewhere, and so you would be using an inter, uh, an application, a front end for container management, such as uh, Podman, Kubernetes, or Docker. Like More than likely you're going to be using some combination of those technologies. You're not going to actually be be, be using LXC locally on your own computer. But this is still an interesting way to kind of get a feel for what a container is. It gets you into like the low level side of container creation. And that kind of makes sense. I think it, it helps other things make more sense. It makes it makes Podman or Docker, for instance, make a little bit more sense when you're throwing these containers into existence. How are they? What's what's making a container? Well, they are. But with LXC, you are. And that's what we'll do next, is create a container configuration file. And understand, to, to in many ways, a, a container, it, it kind of is just a configuration. I mean, it's not entirely, but, but a lot of it is just a configuration file. Like, that's, that's your virtual machine, is a text file describing attributes, okay? So you can open up a, a text, an empty text file in your favorite, um, your con favorite, text editor call it let's say call it mycontainer.conf and you have to give it a couple of like sort of just a few really basic attributes so lxc dot uts name equals and then give it some name so we'll call it gnu world order container or you could call it my container let's call it my container okay lxc dot uts name equals my container lxc dot network dot type equals uh, in this case you would probably do a veth so that's a VETH, virtual ethernet, V-E-T-H, V as in Victor. LXC.network.flags equals up. That's kind of self-explanatory, I think. We want this thing to, to be brought up upon creation. LXC.network.link. You probably could think, you could probably figure out what that's going to be without me telling you, but uh, you'd have to think about it maybe. Equals BR0. Remember we created that bridge. Well, now we want to tie this container to that bridge. We, we want to make sure that we're getting that container signal through the bridge. And then you have to make some stuff up. So, um, for instance, the uh, LXC dot, um, dot network dot HW adder. Um, that's the hardware address of your, of your network. Your, your pretend network card, which doesn't even doesn't actually exist. So um, you, you you can make up some 
fake MAC address for for your pretend virtual Ethernet uh, card. LXC.network.ipv4. You need to tell it what network you want your um, your container to be attached to, and Again, that kind of depends, but you could say um, 192.168.168.1/slash 24. It's a pretty good subnet. Uh, and then LX, and I'm I, I'm doing 192.168.168.1/slash 24 because I don't know what subnets you actually have in in use, uh, and I feel that's a pretty safe one. You would want to ensure that you're not forcing any kind of network collision with your choice of subnet um, but I would leave that up to you um, certainly if you knew if you know better then you can do something different but otherwise just set it to like 192.168.168.1 slash 24 it gives you lots of address space it's quite safe lxc.network.ipv6 equals and then make up a ipv6 um, address and that's all you kind of need um, there are more options which you can view uh, by looking at a sample LXC um, configuration file, which I think think it's in USR. Okay, well, actually, you can do manlxc.container.conf. That would be a good place to start as well. But then there's another. The the actual um, the actual examples are in um, USR share doc LXC dash version number blah slash examples and you see quite a few different um, different example container configurations there you can look through those and get a feel for what kind of properties you're allowed to um, to, to specify within the container now keep in mind also where I'm talking about LXC 2.0-9 and Linux containers LXC right now says that it's on does it give me a version number quickly no it doesn't really well it's 3.0 certainly um lxc 2.0 is supported until june 1st 2021 lxc 3.0 supported until june 1st 2023 so there you go so i'm i am speaking about one that that arguably is 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 out of date although not technically because it's still supported until 2021 so we're okay Okay, so at this point you're you've, you're almost done. You're about two thirds of the way finished to your an operable um, container. You have your network infrastructure because you created a bridge, and you've got some properties of your eventual container defined. But now you need like the OS. You need the the that base layer of a container, which really is just the OS, because you've got your computer, right? We've said before, you've got your physical computer that's running your con- that's going to run your container. You just need a better definition of what that container is exactly. Now, luckily, LXC comes with a bunch of stuff for you already defined. That is in slash USR slash share slash LXC slash templates. And in that container, or in that template folder, you find uh, definitions like LXC-Alpine, LXC-Alt-Linux, LXC-Arch-Linux, LXC-Busybox, I'll start skipping some. Um, LXC-CentOS, Debian, OpenMandriva, that's interesting. OpenSUSE, Slackware, sounds familiar. SSHD, Ubuntu, and Ubuntu Cloud. So quite a few little um, templates already defined for us, which essentially, I mean, that's that's the OS part of the of the container that we that we want to use. So the way that we can do that, because those are templates, we have the infrastructure 
already in existence for Slackware. So we're going to use the Slackware template. And we'll do an lxc-create-name-my-slackware-template Slackware. And once I hit return, it immediately starts downloading packages required, the, to, the bare minimum package set required to spin up a, a, a running but separate Slackware instance within uh, a place called slash var slash lib slash probably lxc i don't know i don't remember off the top of my head but the, and it lists these um these packages as well it, it tells you exactly what it's getting aaa underscore base aaa underscore elf libs aaa underscore term info bash bin bzip2 core utils cyrus sassel db40 and it just goes on and on and on a lot of these things you'll recognize from previous GNU world order episodes i mean a lot of these are the the basic ones that we talked about in the a package set and it downloads all that stuff um it's funny i think in this case i would almost think if i were clever i would i would probably create a um a, a method by which i could just tell it hey don't go grab it from the internet just grab it from from over here you know i would just have all those files in a place where it could just grab it very very quickly uh, and certainly if i was doing this on a regular basis that's exactly what i would do so it's 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 doing that right now it's downloading a bunch of things uh and and it's creating a root file system in um let's find out where this is yeah it's varlib lxc slash slackware slash root fs that's creating the 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 root of the container and you you see it's really quite interesting to, to watch it because you see uh, slackware uh, slack package actually installing stuff like you see it installing you know just as you would with with your own if you were installing something on slackware you see it fly by and installing these packages so once we're done and it is finished now uh it would i would do lxc dash start dash dash name what is it my slackware uh dash dash rc file dot slash my container dot com and that starts the container now we haven't attached to it we haven't quote unquote gone into the container we've simply started it if we want to go into the container we would do lxc dash attach dash dash name my slackware and then we would it, it, it returns a prompt and you might not even realize that you've been transported anywhere but if you do for instance an ip adder show uh you'll see that suddenly you only have two interfaces loop back in ethernet something or another and your ip address isn't what you would think it, it is uh inet ip 192.168.168.1/24. Well, maybe that is what you would think. But if you were expecting to see the uh, the IP address of your host machine, you know, the the physical computer, you might be surprised because yeah, you're not there. That's not where you are. You are in you are within this this container. This gets really confusing because for instance, if I do an ls right now, um I see the files that that I would expect to see like on my host computer so this and, and in fact if i do a host name i get i get my normal host name and yet if i do that ip adder show it's obvious that i'm not really in my host computer i'm i'm somewhere else i'm at some other ip address it's it's really it, it can be very confusing um because that the 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 layer of separation between between the container and 
your host OS sometimes is not as drastic as you might expect. And to get out of that container, to unattach from that container, you would do an uh, exit, and then you're back on your host. How can you tell? Well, easiest way, I guess, is IP adder show, and you'll see now that you've got your loop back, your Ethernet, your WLAN, thank goodness, your bridge zero is back, your virtual ethernet is back, or, or there is a virtual ethernet card now, and so on. So it, it's, um, it can be disorienting because it just doesn't quite, it doesn't feel like, for instance, a virtual machine where you go into this virtual environment and everything's different. Um, in fact, unsettlingly, everything appears to be the same except certain aspects of your of of your of your computer and that's because of that whole namespace concept this this idea that the kernel itself the linux kernel the thing driving your computer can set up these walls these partitions and just imagine that there's a, a computer over here running but it's it's not it's not a it's not a virtual machine even the word container is probably a little bit confusing because a container you do kind of think of it as a, a container that you put things into and 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 it becomes its own thing right it's a box you can pick it up you can carry it around and as i describe it i'm realizing why they chose container because that is actually everything that i've just said is a very apt description of the ability that this gives us but really it's it's less a container than maybe a um a roped off section you know like a boxing ring or a crime scene you know it's kind of like this really sort of really rudimentary like okay well everything in this square is a uh, my slackware not slackware and so if you're in that square then you exist there and you don't go outside of it uh, well except when you want to come outside of it just duck under the tape it's not a big deal we're, we're fine because uh, it's just it's just namespace that's all it is it's it's namespaces that um, that that define certain processes or that bind certain processes to um, to to other to, to specific resources and that's what that's what a container is it is a namespace and that is why those things like like nsinter and and uh, unshare and things like that that's why those commands exist so to to ostensibly to help you not that i would ever actually mess around with this but you could if you wanted to if you knew what you were doing you could go in there and kind of mess around with those namespaces and define new new namespaces and so on and, and again go back to the gnu world order episode in which i speak about that you'll learn more about it um, whether or not it'll actually be of use to you is a completely different question because it is it's pretty low level stuff and like I say, LXC itself, in a way, is pretty low level, and I think I think there's an argument that you're probably not gonna really use LXC directly yourself all that often. Um, then again, maybe you will. It really kind of depends on uh, you know a bunch of sort of the solutions that are being used, because it, it really does just kind of it depends on on your environment. Um, I've not used LXC in the real world for like a big deployment you know everything well everything in my actual real life experience has been with podman so that's the that's the podman is kind of the the demonless uh drop-in replacement for docker uh when docker was still a thing people were i mean it's still a thing but if i feel like it was it was kind of a force for a while it was sort of this this big tank that was rumbling around being not very open uh and then they sort of got they, they got, got bought up by someone and and the 
the remains of it sort of is just like this open source daemon and specification for a specific kind of configuration file, which um, is not the same as an LXC configuration file. I, I quite like the LXC configuration file um, compared to a Docker file, but it's a different different purpose really. So LXC, it's good to know about, it's good to play around with, it's powerful to get you kind of introduced to containers. I do sense that it can be a powerful thing on its own. I'm just saying that in real life I have not had a chance to deploy it anywhere. But it's great to know about, great to have a, a go with. So if you want to get your feet wet with containers, take a look at LXC. It's on your computer right now. Pretty, you know, I, I think relatively, honestly, it's pretty darn easy to use. Although I think arguably so is Podman. So I don't know. Take your pick. Point being, just getting kind of familiar with how containers come about, how, how they're created and how they're started and stopped and how you attach to them and how you can interact with them. Because it, it is, a, a like I say, the container analogy, it, it's good, but it's also misleading because you're not going to step into that container and then live inside that container. You get to peek into that container or reach into the container and do stuff, but you don't go into it the way that you would a virtual machine where you had to click on the window and then your mouse is captured inside of that window and there's a desktop. That's not... That's not the container experience. Um, containers are different, but they're powerful, um, and people are using them all over the place for development and for running services, all that stuff. So you, you do want to get to know them. You want to get familiar with them if you want to um, kind of go farther down the computer uh, computer science path because it, it's it's a big deal. People are using them. Okay, um, that's probably it for this episode. Um but gosh, you know what? We're like one we're, we're we're one letter away from being done th- or we're one package away from being done with the L section and it's so darned tempting. In fact, you know what? Let's do it. Let's just do it real quick. It's going to be quick. It is LZIP. LZIP is a uh, it's a zip tool that you you might think uh, would be related to like, you know, zip files. As far as I can tell, it is not related to zip files and that seems odd but um actually you know what we can we'll, we'll, we'll test what how how related it is in a moment but lzip is it's a zip tool it uses lisma lossless data compression and it works more or less how you would think so let's do an lzip uh what do i got well i got this my container.conf for instance um so i'm just doing lzip dot or no lzip my container.conf and if i do an ls then i find that there is a new file here called my container no not a new file sorry the file my container.conf has been turned into my container.conf.lz so it's been it's been lismud um if we do lzip dash dash decompress or just dash d if you prefer decompress uh, my container.conf.lz do an ls now it is no longer lismud it's it is now just a normal uncompressed file so that's cool okay so what we'll do now is um we'll do lzip on this other file that i have here called trashy.git and it's rather it's a folder it's a directory lzip trashy.git not a regular file can't can't do what I want it to do. Oops. Okay, so we know this. We know this because we've we've probably experienced this problem when we've tried to gzip a directory or bzip a directory. Can't do it. You have to turn it into a tar file first. Okay. So tar create dash dash create dash dash file or just cf for short. Create file trashy.git.tar trashy.git. 
Okay, that worked. And now we'll do an lzip on trashy.git.tar. And indeed, we have now an lzipped version of that full of, of that directory. Cool. So now if we do a let's do a disk used du-h on trashy.git. It says that it's using one megabyte. We probably shouldn't do the human readable. It's doing oh it still says 1024. Okay. So it's, it's using apparently exactly 1024 megabytes of um wait, did I say one megabyte or I did. Okay, one megabyte. So 1024 kilobytes of of space. One megabyte. Um, let's do an ls-lh on the Lismud version of it. It is saying it's only using 145 kilobytes of space. So that's a pretty big, pretty big decrease there. Let's compare it to something that we that we're kind of used to. We'll do a tar cf for create file trashy.git.tar again. Trashy.git as our source, and then we're just doing a gzip of trashy dot git dot tar and now we'll do an ls dash l so the gzip version of it actually we'll do an lh gzipped version is 163 kilobytes and the lzipped version is 145 so we're saving a good 20 kilobytes from gzip to lzip of course we owe it to ourselves to do the tar command again and do the bzip to command again, or rather um, now, bzip2, and do an ls-lh, and we get 156 on bzip, 163 on gzip, and still 145 on lzip. So in that, in this scenario, lzip has has improved the bzip2 results by about 11 kilobytes yeah and in a previous test that i'd done it did not outperform bzip it, it came in larger than the bzip on lzip so i think the the results are going to vary i think it's going to kind of depend on on what you are compressing a couple of interesting uh, options here there is the obviously dash dash decompress to undo what you've just done there is the dash dash recompress or dash capital F, and that forces recompression of compressed files. So if we do lzip dash capital F, or dash dash recompress, of trashy.git.tar.bz2, and then do an ls, uh, ls dash lh again, we get a file that's 158 kilobytes for our bzip2 recompressed as an lzip. So not exactly an improvement on either bzip or lzip because remember it was 156 previously so i'm not exactly sure what the recompress does but again different tests render different results so and this is like one random one that i randomly chose so don't don't hold me to these results necessarily but it is kind of it's 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 an interesting idea anyway um and i think it would probably be worth maybe playing around with although to be fair Maybe not. Um, this is the kind of thing where I feel like once I find a, a mostly good compression, I tend to just stick with that and, um, and, and leave it at that because I figure, I don't know, I, I don't quibble over, I don't know, a couple of hundred kilobytes or, or, or even a hundred, a couple of megabytes typically, not when, not, not when compressing. Uh, that said, you know, there are cases where you do need to do that because you're trying to frantically fit some file on some medium that doesn't have, you know, that's just, 
just 300 kilobytes short or something like that. So maybe that would be something to explore. And I don't know, there are a couple of other other things like the compression level, dash zero through dash nine, that sort of thing. Dash dash fast gives you a dash zero. Dash dash best gives you a dash nine. Uh, again, not really something I ever have to worry about. I'm, I'm never that pressed for time that I have to, to concern myself with just how, how fast my, my, my compression is going. So um, let's do an LS here. Uh, here's trash git tar z. So I'm going to do an unzip trash dot git dash tar dot dot lz, and it says that it is um, the signature is not found. Either this file is not a zip file, or it um, is a multi-part um, file, and so on. So so zip the actual you know z the zip command, which I think what do we We've talked about it before, I'm pretty sure. I, I think there's some fancy name for it. Um, I don't remember what it's called, though. I think there was some kind of, you know, longer name for the, the proper zip file. InfoZip, that was it. Info-zip. Doesn't recognize an lzip, apparently, as a zip file. And that makes some sense, because I didn't think Lisma was the same as, as InfoZip. I didn't have any reason to believe. Oh, it's pkzip is actually what I was thinking of anyway. pkzip, Phil Katz's zip for MS-DOS. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Who cares? Zip files, I, I typically just, I, the only reason I ever use zip, literal zip, is because I know that sometimes I'm sending it to someone who's not going to ha have access to untar. And, and that really boils down to Windows users, because even Mac users can un untar a gzip or bzip file. And, and I I'm, if memory serves, their their GUI can do it for them. They don't even have to think about it. They just double click on it. It gets un, unarchived. So I, I thought technically, uh, and this, I'm I'm wrong, but I thought uh, that things like 7-zip, which or 7-z, whatever, 7-zip uh, does. I, I thought. I mean, it does. Uh, it implements a Lisma compression algorithm. So I thought, well, okay, then probably LZ will be something that. Uh, 7-zip could could unarchive, and I tried that 7zx uh, space x space for instance. Let's try it with this one first. Mycontainer.conf.lz says that it's uh, can't open that as an archive. That's surprising. So then let's just try Lisma directly. So that's Lisma lzma dash dash decompress mycontainer.conf.lz file format not not recognized. So this is kind of disconcerting to me because that it. If if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, and, and maybe I'm just missing something, but as far as I can tell, lzip is the only thing that can open lzip files, and that makes me a little bit nervous. Uh, I don't love that. I mean, like at least I mean I realize gzip and bzip uh, are kind of they only you know they they have their algorithms that they use and it's different from a lot of other stuff but then again i mean i could do a 7z uh, x on trashy dot git dot tar dot gz and that unzips fine so that works so i've got at least one backup system there but for lzip to be the only thing that recognizes an lzip file even though it's open source and I should feel fine about that, I'm a little bit hesitant to adopt a tool for which there is only one um, one tool to then undo that that compression. So not super confident in that aspect of it. Probably just stick with gzip or bzip myself. It is. Uh, what about xz? Let's try xz really quick. I am curious. 
xz dash decompress although you know i think this actually comes with the lisma tool it's probably not going to work but let's try it yeah final format yeah lzip as far as i can tell that it's the the only thing that can that can decompress uh L, an lzip file and that does make me a little bit nervous but anyway lzip it's a compression uh tool you could use it if you wanted to i'm just taking notice that it's apparently the only thing that can decompress itself not sure if i'm crazy about that aspect but it is open source so it's all out there and it will be out there for as long as it's out there so that's that's a good thing that's it now we're done with the l's in the ap package set that means next week we can move on to the m section for mad play man and maria db and mc and a bunch of other stuff so join me won't you next week Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. through the brain pan, tumble down through the sinuses, slide down the esophagus, and finally let them plunge to the base of the soul itself.